0: Me, if you're between the ages of four to second grade, now is your turn to go to kids' club. Almost sucked Pierce in. I try to convince him every week it's his turn to preach and my turn to go to kids' club. This week he followed me. I thought I was going to get a, him to preach for me. Well, we talked about Operation Christmas Child. I'll, I'll get in my uh, vote for it. Uh, Friday night I left work and went and picked up a pizza at Papa Murphy's. You can do that if you'd like. Went home, cooked it, and then we took our kids to Walmart. Um, Wanted to let them pack their own boxes. Uh, We kind of made it a family date night. Wanted to let them have the opportunity to fill a box, so we asked them what what some of their favorite toys were. Um, Now, when we got home, the challenge was that Anna Kate wanted to keep everything in her box. She was really convinced it was for her, um, but to talk about the opportunity to give and to give her life away, um, which to be really honest with you, the message did not come across at all. Um, cryingly, we shut the box and had to put it away. But the greater message was there. So there's my vote for kind of Operation Christmas Child. Was we've been walking through um, this series called Rooted in the Gospel. We've been working through the Book of Ephesians. Kind of talk about every week that there's lots of ways to go through the book of Ephesians. We're going through it really briefly. We, we've actually divided it into 13 weeks. We're looking at these kind of broad scans, these broad applications, to see how the whole book kind of flows together. Kind of put it together for you this way, that the first three chapters are the indicatives. They tell you who you are. And when you get to chapter four, you move into the imperatives. That it, Christianity, in the essence... It's not a list of rules. It's not what you do. However, once you understand who you are, there is an accurate picture of what that should look like. And so it's going to put that before us. You have to appreciate at some level that an apple looks like an apple. Looks like an apple purposefully. It's, It's got a purpose. And that when God calls people and redeems their souls within themselves... God doesn't just wanna redeem your soul, but he wants to redeem your mouth. And he wants to redeem your hands. And he wants to redeem your feet. And he's wanting to work out this whole process of his redemption in your life so that you'll better reflect him. Because he has a purpose for you. And that's really where we've been heading in this text. You have to be really careful when you turn into chapter four because Christians can really quickly become rule followers. And so we've got to nail down really quickly, and here's your statement. There are not, there's not a list of rules here. Please don't write a checklist and go check, 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 Christian, boom. You'll miss it. But for us to understand what a Christian life well-rooted in the gospel really looks like. When we really understand what the first three chapters have to say about who we are in Jesus, what does it look like for us then to live it out? What does it look like for us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called? So let's walk into chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 17 says this. Now this I say and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. Now Paul has been working through to these people in the early part of chapter four, trying to articulate what God is trying to do in the church, how he's redeeming us, and in his church, he's building a body. And as he's building a body, he's trying to build a diverse group of people who functionally don't look like they should work well together, but because of Jesus, we can gather and praise because of Jesus. Now when he starts to turn the corner here in 17, he's moving away from the church and he's going to look at our lives now. And he's going to start to articulate that because of Jesus, our lives need to look differently So when he says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That's actually a pretty striking statement. Because Paul is writing to a group of people who identify themselves primarily as Gentiles. So he's telling a group of Gentiles, Hey Gentiles, people who know that you're a Gentile, don't walk like a Gentile anymore. It'd be like me walking into the room and say, hey, Americans, don't be very American anymore. That'd be awesome. Hey, Minnesotans, um, I'm from the outside, don't be Minnesotan anymore. Hey, North Dakotans, don't be very North Dakotan anymore. Because he's trying to reconcile you to the gospel. He's trying to reconcile your primary identity to Jesus rather than culture. And that's actually really important for us and striking for us as Americans. Because if there's any rampant, pervasive cultural identity as an American, it's that we're incredibly individualistic and we're exceedingly self-centered. And so this is gonna war at the very heart of that. Paul's gonna say, don't walk like a Gentile anymore. That's challenging to us. Because as we walk in the 21st century, we want to adapt it to culture, we want to fit in. But friends, i got to tell you, our desire to fit in, our desire to walk with the culture has lost any perspective of what gospel transformation ought to look like in our lives. Let me illustrate it this way. I think I've quoted this book before. David Kinnaman wrote a book called Unchristian. He wrote it in, I think, 2011. I should have looked. That's what I get for making stuff up. 2008. David, David Kinneman is the president of the Barna Group. Okay, reasonable guy, reasonable title. If you're familiar with Barna, they do extraordinary research. Uh, unlike a lot of things, they focus a lot of their research on Christianity. So they got a sizable group of people together a hundred thousand people, and started asking them questions. Well, how does your life look? What do you do? What does your practices look like? This is what David Kinneman says in his book. When asked to identify their activities over the last 30 days, born again believers. Now see, that's crucial. Because if you've studied any sense of statistical analysis, you know you can make statistics say anything you want. He's not asking people who identify themselves as Christian. He's asking people who identify themselves as born again, people who've placed their life in Jesus, people who've found themselves in Jesus, people who've found that Jesus has given them new life. Over the last 30 days, born again believers were just as likely to bet or gamble just as likely to visit pornographic websites, just as likely to take something that did not belong to them, to consult a medium or a psychic, to physically fight or to abuse someone, including their spouse, to have consumed enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, to have used an illegal non-prescriptive drug, to have said something to someone that wasn't true, to have gotten back at someone for something he or she had done, and to have said mean things behind another person's back. He goes on to say that the one thing they discovered that was distinctively true about born-again Christians, the most notable difference between people who identify themselves as born-again Christians and our cultural society fall into three gaps: we own more Bibles, we go to church more often, and we're more likely to give to a religious organization. We walk like Americans. Categorically speaking, we walk like Americans. When they survey 100,000 people and they can't find statistical variances between how Christians walk and the world walks, friends, i got to be honest with you. When we wonder why the church has a muted influence in our world right now, that's why. Because it doesn't look like Jesus has any power in our life. It doesn't look like Jesus has authority in our lives. It doesn't look like when we read a passage where the Lord Jesus, the Lord meaning that he is over us, he is supreme over us, he is our king, commands us to do something, and we don't do it. We nullify his title of Lord. We wonder why the world doesn't look at the church and go, ooh, I want to be a part of that. Because we gamble just as much. We look at just as much porn. We abuse people just as frequently. Guys, our whole testimony to the world is that we're just the same as they are. So when Paul says to these Gentiles, and clearly this is not an American problem, clearly this was happening into the Ephesians church just the same. Don't walk like a Gentile anymore. Walk out your identity in Jesus. Understand the redemption that Jesus Christ has for you. That as we've walked through Ephesians and we're looking at what does it mean to have a life well-rooted in the gospel, it's to understand that you're depraved, it's to understand that you have sin, that you struggle, but to understand that the redemptive power of Jesus Christ is more than sufficient. It's overwhelmingly more and to not let Jesus just translate into our soul, but to let Jesus translate into every extremity in our body so that what Jesus says affects our hands, and it affects our feet, and it affects our minds. Friends, this is not a list of rules we're about to walk into, but it's being like Jesus. The one thing the world really, really desperately needs from us is Christ likeness. So he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. It's interesting that he doesn't point to a list of wrongs. And I think it's purposeful. Because as he's going to walk through, he's going to give us an understanding that they have a different mindset, not just giving into sin. Where this becomes helpful for us is to realize it's not about what you do or the list of rights and wrongs. There's a mindset that leads to that. Why that becomes crucial for us to understand is I can find a group of atheists who are living better moral lives than some of us. For the last eight years, I walked on college campuses as a college pastor and dealt with it all the time. When you have tearful college girls come to your office and say I'm dating an atheist and it's breaking my heart but he's treating me better than any Christian guy I ever met. What do you do with that? There are atheists who walk morally. So it's not just about rights or wrongs, it's about having a different mindset. Klein Snodgrass who wrote written a number of commentaries, said this about this section. He said, The more we conform to society, the less we truly understand conversion to Jesus. The more we conform to society, the less we truly understand conversion, what Jesus has done to us. And so as Paul has worked through Ephesians, he's giving us these formally and now statements. He tells us in chapter two that formerly, he says, remember that at, w- at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promises, no hope. We walked through that. That there's theological differences between who you were prior to Christ and who you are after Christ. And as, he worked, as we work through this section, he now wants to point out to you what the old man looked like and what the old man practiced. What did it look like prior to Christ? What does it look like for somebody to live without Christ? And how does that flow out of their not knowing Jesus? And ultimately, he's going to turn the corner and say, what does the new man look like? And how does that flow out of his understanding? So that's where we're going this morning in 15 minutes, according to Lenny. He says about the old man they are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. And obviously the first thing you got to say about that is it is a really poor evangelism technique. I would not walk around saying, you guys are darkened in your understanding. You have hard hearts. But the Bible is actually pretty clear that that's true Romans will testify to the truth of most of this teaching. People choose to deny God and to live out their selfish lifestyle. And it's not just about their practices, it's about how they think. And it comes out of them. It says in 19 they've become callous, they've given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And guys, walking in the 21st century, this has gotta be so clear to us. Because when we stop looking at biblical authority, when we stop embracing what God has to say about our lives, that the natural end of sin is sexual licentiousness. Means we give in to anything we want. We start embracing this idea that whatever I want, I deserve. And friends, let me just articulate quickly. This is ruining our country. By the way, I will print this out and mail it to Houston this week. If you've been following any of that. Because when we started embracing homosexual marriage in this country, we embraced the idea that you could choose whatever you want, that whatever you wanted is okay. Now process that for just a second, so you can see where this goes. Because if what you really want you can have, if what you really want in your heart you deserve, what happens to the guy who wants to marry his sister? We've got nothing to say anymore. What happens to the guy who wants to marry his mom? We've got nothing to say anymore. What happens to the guy who wants to marry his cow? We've got nothing to say anymore because it's all about you getting what you want. See, that's the mindset that's at play. That's the mindset that the church has to fight back. And, guys, let me get on you for a second. The fight is with your lifestyle, not with your mouth. The church needs far more people living out the gospel than blogging about it. The fight is going to be lived with your lifestyle. The church lost the argument on marriage long ago when we stopped talking about divorce. We got owned. And it's playing out. And it's playing out. We should not be shocked that our culture is moving in this direction. The Bible tells us that over and over again. They'll be giving themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. In verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. He makes a huge transitionary statement away from just being a Gentile to Jesus. That when you went to the school of Jesus, you learned better than that. Your mind was changed. Your heart was transformed. That when you allowed Jesus Christ to come into your life, when you accepted salvation, when God took control of you, you started to understand that what you wanted wasn't the most important thing. That what you were hungry for isn't always what you needed. And that there are some things that you need to say no to. And more importantly, there's some things God gets to say no to you. Because if God can't say no to you, he's not your God. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him. And we're taught in him. Assuming you know the truth about Jesus is what he's saying. A tru- Assuming you really, really know him. You know better than that. Continues in 22 to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires that you put away your old self. Now one of the challenges in the church is that a lot of us came to Christ 20, 30, 40 years ago. Some of you people were born here. So when we come to a passage like this, you don't understand the former life because you don't look back at a picture of you drunk and making stupid mistakes in college, or maybe you do. And so when we come to these passages, when it talks about the old self, it's not telling you to go back to like the sinful days because if you accepted Jesus at four, you only apply this to not stealing cookies. But he's telling you to put away your flesh and to put on Jesus and to walk in the redemption that Jesus has for you. He says that in 23 to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He tells you to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness, to put on Jesus. Now this is modeled throughout the New Testament. You find it in Romans 12. When in Romans 12, at the end of a really amazing argument, Sometime we'll teach Romans, but we will not teach Romans in 13 weeks. That will be the nine-year series. Because you just can't teach it. That sh- Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul's not articulating, hey, create a checklist of things not to do. Do this, don't do No, renew your mind... That by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, pragmatically, practically, what that looks like, you're gonna renew your mind, you're gonna start studying God's Word. And when you come to something, you're gonna be able to discern what God's will is. So, when God says, don't do this. Now, friends, we don't have to be geniuses when we come to biblical imperatives. Yesterday, when I asked Pierce to pick up his Legos, what do you think I meant? Did Pierce get his buddy Liam and talk about what it means to pick up your Legos? Did Pierce say, Dad, I've been contemplating picking up my Legos, and I just feel like, I don't know, that's just not who I am in Jesus. Jesus. we we need to actually appreciate that when we spend time in God's word, that the renewing of our mind is him speaking truth into our lives and being able to say no. And that we as receptive believers honoring our Lord, who is sovereign above us, have to say, okay, Lord, that's going to be really hard. But if you say no, if you say that's better for me, if you say you want to use me in this way, then I'll do it. And guys, this kind of transformation looks different in everybody. It looks different in everybody. In my life, I've got a number of friends who are alcoholics. And, and, and you hear their testimonies. I have a number of friends who literally accepted Jesus and the next morning never desired to drop again. And I know people who, the next morning, wanted to pick up a six-pack and start plugging away. See, transformation looks different for all of us. And here's the point of that. For some of us, it's going to take a lot of work. And we've kind of embraced this ideology that loving Jesus does not require me to work on me much. That I just go, mm, Jesus, grace. Grace. It's okay that I steal. He's got great, he covers all of my sins. What? What? When my five-year-old disobeys, what happens to him? Like, why do we miss that parallel? You know why God gives you kids? So he can teach you about himself. The number of times I'm holding one of my little ones going, man, I'm a moron. I just don't get it at all. Why do I just, hmm? Like, I get really irritated sometimes when my kids whine and complain. I go, man, Lord, I do that to you all the time. Lord, I don't really want to move to North Dakota. It's going to be cold there, and it's going to be <laughs> freezing, and I don't even have the right jacket, and God has the right to say no to us. He's creating something in us. He's renewing us. He's redeeming us. And he's sanctifying us. Ooh, gotta hurry. So then when you get to twenty-five and you start wondering what is that redemption, what does that sanctification look like? He's gonna give you some examples. We don't have time to peel all of them apart, but kind of conveniently they're imperatives. So if you wander away, wander away this morning, going, what should I do? Here's a pretty decent list. So when it says be angry and do not sin, that's actually an imperative. Anger is okay. Sinning and anger is not. I'll illustrate it for you this way. Yesterday when my three-year-old decided in great wisdom that shoving an entire roll of toilet paper in the toilet was a genius practice, I was angry, and I was right to be angry. I was fine to be angry about it. Shoving her down would have been the mistake. Yelling at her would have been the mistake, Do you see what that looks like? There's a fine tension there. God says it's okay to be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, which by the way means you take it to the Lord. Some days, this is my seven-year-old marriage advice. Some of you married way longer than me know this far better. There are a lot of days sleeping on anger is a really good plan. But you better meet with Jesus about it. You better talk to the big guy about it before you put your head on the pillow or guess what? This is seven years of marriage speaking. You, you won't sleep very well. And give no opportunity to the devil. God, in his sovereign desire, is wanting to redeem you emotionally. Emotionally. So if you wonder what your salvation looks like, it means God's going to look at your emotions and those different aspects of you and redeem them for his glory. He's going to work on you. And for some of you, it's going to be really hard. And for some of you, it's going to be overnight. Discern which one you are. 28, let the thief no longer steal because he wants to redeem your hands. You look at the old man. The old man stole Why? Because he didn't want to work. He wanted to take what did not belong to him. So to redeem that, God says, don't steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so he may have something to share with anyone in need. God wants to redeem your hands. He wants to redeem your work. And friends, before we think work is awful, do appreciate that work preceded the fall, that work was actually intended to be worship. All along, God is trying to redeem our hands and how we work. This next part might be mildly convicting. And let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only, if you find a lot of exceptions there, let me know. There's there's not like a star in my Bible. Not a lot of footnotes that are about to come by. But only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. God is desiring to redeem your tongue. All of your language. When you read this, you don't get to come back and go, yeah, but I need to be culturally relevant. I have nothing to say about that. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. I'm not telling you, by the way. I'll say this about a thousand times from this pulpit. Okay, please hear. This is not Ben nails everything. This is the authority we stand behind, not my life. You want to call me and say, Ben, you stink at all that? I'll take the phone call. You know why? I stink at all of it. But this book where God writes to us and the Lord gives us and commands to us says let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths but only such as for building up we've got to let jesus redeem our tongues and do not grieve the holy spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption and let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you i got to be honest with you again. There's not any exceptions there. So if you're holding on to anger, you're holding on to it against the will of God. So if you've got anger in your heart because of your life, something that's happened to you, you got to deal with God about that. You don't just get to hold on to it. Why? It'll ruin your life. You've gotta let go of all of those things. It's redeemed in 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. You find all of this, this whole passage, it's, it's not follow this list of rules so that you can be a moral person. Has it ever occurred to you when we try to be these great moral people, all we get is weird? It doesn't tell you to wear denim dresses all the time. It's weird. Unless you do that, then it's totally normal. (laughs) It's not pushing you to weirdness. Christianity has this flavor of trying to be weird rather than being Christ-like. It's calling you to reveal God's redemptive grace through your life to the world. That as God is trying to build a church that reveals who he is to society, God is trying to build people who reflect the grace of his redemption. So that as you walk out of this building and people look at your lives, by the way, this book calls them to look at your lives. In fact, it calls non-believers to judge you. And they should. Because your life is to be a reflection of what Jesus Christ did at the cross. It's about him. It's about you living out the gospel. It's about his redeeming grace being put on display in your life. It's not about following rules. It's not about being good enough. It's about reflecting who you are in Jesus. It's about his redemptive grace being on display in your life. So that when people look at your life and they go, man, Scott used to be like this and now he's like this. I wonder why. The right answer is Jesus. It's about living out our baptisms. It's about that you were put under, you entered into death and you came out alive. And it's living out the life in Jesus. It's about us owning the reality that God is doing something and he's sanctifying us. And for some of us, it's really hard work. But it's worthwhile. As he's working through chapter four, he's working on what does it look like for us to live out the gospel? What does the gospel, really well-rooted, look like in us? Next week, he's gonna take it to another level. What does it look like for the gospel well-rooted for us to engage the world? This, this week, it's about your character. It's about who you are. It's about your practices. He's taking you to task on that. So guys, if you walk away this morning and you don't at least take a couple of moments to prayerfully ask God to convict you of sin, of where your life is not being redeemed for his glory, you've wasted your time And I mean that literally. God's trying to redeem us and do something amazing for the glory of his son. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for how you love us. For you have loved us so exceedingly well in your son Jesus. You've loved us so exceedingly well in your son Jesus that in him we find life. We don't find life in any of the pitiences of this world. We don't find life in the acceptance of this world. Father, you did something incredible through your Son at the cross, and you redeemed our souls. Keep working out, Father, in us our salvation, so that your redemption affects our mouths, and it affects our hands, and it affects our feet, so that how we carry ourselves is not as the Gentiles do, is not as the Americans do, is not like everyone else who's walking down the street, but how we carry ourselves is so distinct to the work that you did at the cross. For your glory. Amen.